The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. This is Sunday Edition with Anthony Corona. Every week here on ACB Media One, that's American Council of the Blind, Media One, and soon after on all your major podcast catchers. Each week, we'll dive into the news, human interest, and discussions about the issues surrounding all of us in and out of the American Council of the Blind community. Well, good morning, everybody, or good afternoon, as your pleasure uh, may be. Uh, I am Ron Brooks, uh, and I am really excited to be here and to welcome all of you. Um, I want to just acknowledge uh, Anthony Corona, who is a, the uh, originator and host for Sunday Edition. He uh, invited uh, Lisa, my wife, and me to participate uh, as a host for today. And so uh, we we wanted to think of something that would be really interesting and fun that that we haven't talked about uh, on on Sunday edition. Uh, we also wanted to find something that we didn't spend too much time on at our recently completed conference and convention, and it didn't take us long to think of autonomous vehicles, which is something uh, is a space where um, I uh, in my uh, business accessible avenue and where we've been doing quite a bit of of, of work. So. Before we get started on our topic of autonomous vehicles, are they transforming, are they terrifying, or both? Um, I want to just acknowledge and thank some folks. Um, I always, I've already thanked Anthony. So again, thank you, Anthony, for the chance to uh, host. I want to acknowledge and thank Sheila, who will be doing uh, ACB hosting duties. Uh, and uh, she's well prepared for that, obviously. She does this all the time. And I want to thank uh, Belinda Carter, who is doing all sorts of work today. She's hosting in Clubhouse. Uh, and she is streaming uh, on ACB Media. And of course, I'd like to thank all of you, whether you've joined on Zoom uh, or whether you've joined through Clubhouse or whether you're listening on ACB Media. So let's dive right on in. So a couple of things about this topic. So of course, autonomous vehicles are a hot topic. They are a hot topic um, within the industry where I work in transportation. Uh, we are all trying to figure out how do we take advantage of all of this new technology that is becoming available? How do we make transportation more efficient, faster, safer, more effective for everybody? And there are lots and lots of people working uh, to bring autonomous vehicles into uh, various parts of the transportation ecosystem. Um, and we're going to talk to some of those folks today. Uh, it is also a really hot topic in our community. We have, um, you know, some of us are really uh, very excited about this technology and we think it's like the best thing that ever happened. Some of us are just chomping at the bit to go buy one of our very own and park it in our garage um, so we can go to all the places that everybody else uh, is able to drive to. Others of us aren't so sure and have questions and have concerns. And of course, there's questions around how is this technology going to be accessible? How is it going to be safe? Um, you know, who's going to have access to it? Where's it going to go? When's it going to get there? You know, all those kinds of questions. Uh, and we haven't even talked about things like insurance and ownership models and all that other stuff that's coming. And then the biggest question of all is when is this stuff going to be, you know, in 
in our neighborhood, on our street, in our driveway. So we have two panels today, and we're going to take the full two hours to dive deep into this topic. Uh, first, we're going to have a panel um, who is working uh, within the industry. These are folks, um, uh, several of them are people that I was able to meet at a conference in Jacksonville. Uh, Jacksonville, of course, is a place where we will be next year. It is a place that's leading the country uh, in some respects. Um, and I happen to live in another place where uh, autonomous vehicles are making a pretty big splash. So uh, we have I've, I've had opportunities to meet some folks and, and invited them to come join us in this first hour to talk from the industry's perspective. And then in the second hour, we're going to talk to some people in our community uh, who are uh, dealing with th this, these issues from a different perspective. These are people who have used autonomous vehicles, uh, people who maybe are working on the issue from an advocacy perspective, and in one case, a person who is actually a guide dog trainer um, who has to think about how, what do these things mean for people who use guide dogs and for the dogs themselves. So, so that's what we're going to do. And of course, we're going to have some time to throw in uh, for questions, comments, uh, and some discussion. So why don't we just jump right on in? Um, and I'm going to just start right off with our uh, introducing our first uh, panel. Um, and these are, um, first person I'm going to introduce is Harold Braun. Harold is the CEO for a company called Guidant Corp. Uh, and I'm not going to steal any of his, his thunder except to say that Guidant Corp is in the transportation, the public transit space of uh, and shuttle space of where this technology, where autonomous vehicles um, have some uh, have some definite business cases. Uh, and, and he'll talk a lot more about that. Uh, second, I want to introduce Tyler Fox. Tyler is a product manager uh, for Waymo. And uh, Waymo is in the ride hailing space. So th this is the business idea that you call a vehicle and it comes and takes you where you want to go. And then the third person is Mike Nolte. I met Mike in Jacksonville. And and um, Mike's role is he is uh, an, an an industry executive. He's been around the industry for a long time, the automotive industry, that is. And he's really on the manufacturing side, working with people who are building vehicles. Uh, and his and he'll talk about kind of where he fits in uh, to this equation as we dive in. So let me just start and just throw this out there. And I'm going to um, ask this uh, first question to, to all three of you, really. And if you could just take a minute or two to introduce yourselves. Uh, Talk about your organization just briefly and your role within the organization and, and maybe just quickly how you came to care and work on this issue of autonomous vehicles. And we'll start with Harold. Yeah, Ron, thank you very much uh, for the invitation and uh, very happy to be here uh, with all of you. So um, my name is Harold Brown. I'm the um, chairman and CEO of uh, Guidant, um, a US-based uh, software company. Um, uh, based in uh, Boca Raton, uh, Florida. Why Boca Raton? Uh, because uh, I was the president and CEO of Siemens Communications US, and uh, we had our headquarter in Boca Raton, and of course the corporate headquarter was in New York. And uh, so when I founded the company in 2019, um, <clears throat> I, um, you know, I founded it in, in in Boca, where I live since more than 25 years. I'm originally from Germany, but I'm also a, a U.S. Uh, citizen. And uh, um, from my point of view, um, I'm coming from the telecommunication industry. For me, everything is connected, uh, um, you know, over a mobile network. And uh, when I was thinking, how can we actually make a difference 
in public transportation and uh, reducing the death toll of uh, uh, yearly combustion engine cars and uh, also help uh, communities such as yours, it was very clear we need to connect cars and not only EVs, we uh, directly went into autonomous vehicles. And uh, so uh, we, uh, our claim is that we make autonomous vehicles safer. How? Um, we developed an, um, what we call Remote Monitoring and Control Center, RMCC, uh, which is a software platform. And this can be introduced to uh, several vehicles. Uh, uh, of course, uh, the first use case is uh, public transportation, as Ron mentioned, but there are many other use cases uh, as well. <clears throat> and think about it as an um, airport control tower. So there is a person or more person sitting in a remote monitoring and control center anywhere in this world. Um, our two control centers right now are in uh, in the US, in Boca Raton. And um, there is a person in there and um, with uh, the dashboards or with several dashboards and um, an alarming system, which is based on artificial intelligence and also on a prevent and pre predict and prevent uh, uh, software, um, which, by the way, all is patented. This um, remote monitoring and control human uh, will get alarms and will know when to interact with an AV which is in trouble. I will talk a little bit more later on about it, but in principle, that we call human in the loop while you can imagine an autonomous vehicle has no driver, has no steering wheel or no pedals for now, for now they have, but uh, in the future not. That means you will have a human in the loop all the time and also interacting with passengers. So I'm going a little bit more uh, about it later on. So we call that human in the loop concept and uh, and uh, you know, that's what we're doing. And we are integrated uh, right now uh, with several vehicles in the industry. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, Tyler, uh, go ahead and introduce yourself and your role at Waymo and what you all are, how you got into AV. Sure. Uh, yeah. Hi, I'm everyone. I'm, I'm Tyler Fox. Uh, I'm a product manager at Waymo. Um, a little bit about Waymo. It started originally in 2009 as the Google self-driving car project. Um, and, uh, you know, lots changed. We've made a lot of progress since then. Um, and so, like Ron mentioned, we're focused right now on um, fully autonomous ride hailing. So, um, you know, getting people where they need to go and uh, we request a car and then get picked up and dropped off. Um, and, you know, I think the last figure we, we quoted uh, was you know, doing over 10,000 trips a week now between San Francisco and Phoenix uh, to uh, external public riders. Um, at Waymo, I uh, am a product manager that focuses on ride experience, um, so which of course includes accessibility. Um, and you know, I guess for me, uh, I'm working in the field because you know, first of all, I, I really do believe in, in the mission to make transportation safer and easier for everyone. Um, and I, I also really enjoy tackling you know, the new product and technical problems we need to solve to, to make this a reality. And I really believe it can be transformative and, and make a, a lot of people's lives a lot better uh, if we're successful. Awesome. Thank you. And Mike, last but not least. Yeah, last but not least. Uh, thanks, Ron. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, Mike Nolke, uh, like Ron said, I um, work in the automotive industry for like uh, 30 years. I started with uh, Chrysler in, uh, in Europe, Germany, and then uh, went to Mercedes-Benz, um, different countries, uh, different continents. Just like Harold, I was also born here. So I'm a U.S. citizen, born in New York, but my parents were German immigrants, so I grew up in Germany. 
Um, you can hear the accent, so I never could really get rid of it. Um, obviously, working uh, basically for the last 25 years for Mercedes-Benz in different countries, obviously autonomous vehicle is part of every common effectors strategy right now. So it's a big topic, like Ron said in the beginning. How did I get involved with uh, you know accessibility specifically? Um, was not when we started to talk about autonomous vehicles. I actually got involved in um, you know supporting people with disability, or how can we as the automotive industry support people with disability? When I was in Russia ten years ago, I was running the uh, Mercedes-Benz dealership in Moscow back in uh, 2013-14, and as you may recall, 2014-14, uh, we had actually the Winter Olympics in Sochi 2014 and when you would have a country that is hosting the Olympics uh, summer or winter they also host the uh, Paralympics so Russia was hosting in Sochi the Winter Olympics but they were also hosting the Paralympics in Sochi in 2014 and there was a big uh, push at that time because back in 2014 uh, people with disability it was a real issue in Russia the Russian government was not really supporting people with disability, according to what we are used to have seen in the Western European or in the Western world, like in, in America. And uh, we as global operating companies, we were kind of tasked saying, hey, what can you do as a company operating in Russia when we have the Paralympics in this country? What can you do to highlight, you know, uh, support for people with disability to make it better for these people here in Russia? And, uh, you know, we came up with my team with the idea, well, what can we use, uh, you know, in addition to maybe standard shuttle service? And Mercedes-Benz, we were hosting uh, fashion shows around the world. And as part of our, you know, ongoing core business, Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week was a big thing, which especially in Russia caught a lot of attention in the media. And I said, why don't we use that platform, the fashion show? And I was lucky enough to meet some people in, in Moscow that were actually designing clothes specifically for people with disability. And I said, that's great. And, you know, why don't we put up a one hour dedicated special show designing clothes just for people with disability for the different kind of disabilities and have it presented by models with disabilities. So present the clothes that were designed for them. And it was a huge success. So we, that was the first show with models with disability presenting clothes that were made specifically for them. It has been an ongoing thing since 2014 until, of course, the sanctions and the, the crisis with Ukraine. But this concept of having, you know, close adaptive closing, you know, for people with disability basically started back there at that Moscow fashion sheet during the Paralympics. And as you see now, it's been going across the world. And this is how I got involved, what we can do to help people with disability in the automotive industry. And then obviously, when it came to autonomous vehicles, uh, due to my activities back then, I got involved with the product development guys in Germany that are developing steering aids, uh, you know, to be put into cars specifically for people with disability. So now with autonomous cars, um, I'm very much involved in that and looking forward to this panel and discuss about it a little bit further down the line. Very good. Awesome. All right. Well, we, we have three different people with three very different uh, perspectives. So this should be a good conversation. So let's dive in. Harold, uh, start yes. with you. So, and you talked about some of this already, but uh, the you know, guide, um, guidance um, is is in the space of public transportation, and um, and I wanted you 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 started to describe your approach, but if you could just talk a bit more specifically about how you would how you see human in the loop, the concept that you introduced a minute ago, maybe just talk a little bit more about your approach and and how you see human in the loop addressing kind of day to day. You know, the kind of issues that are, that you think are going to be 
coming up in, in a transportation environment and, and how this technology can really support that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, happy to do that. Um, uh, first, of course, our first use case is in the uh, public uh, transportation field. Yeah. But we have many other uh, business business segments as well. So let's go through a couple of things in a scenario what could happen. Um, let's say an autonomous vehicle is uh, in some uh, trouble, right? Um, I'm not identified a trouble uh, uh, yet. And um, with our um, prevent and predict uh, model and also the uh, artificial intelligence uh, models we have in our software and the um, vehicles, autonomous vehicles are equipped with several cameras, with LiDAR, with uh, a couple of sensors. Um, we, Our uh, software will get an alarm and some people see behind me a monitoring and control center, which is the real life uh, one in Boca Raton. So we get an alarm. So the, the first thing what happened is that the uh, remote control operator sees that alarm. Uh, by the way, we should get this alarm before something is happening. So, um, so we should predict and prevent uh, issues, whether these are from the car itself, whether this is a traffic situation, a deadlock situation, a navigation error or whatever. Um, so we get an alarm. The vehicle on the map turns red, the RCO, the remote control operator, goes uh, into that vehicle, and then let's say the vehicle stops. Uh, the first thing what happened is that uh, the uh, remote monitoring or the um, RCO, the remote control operator, will interact with a video um, uh, intercom with the passengers in that vehicle, telling them what is happening right now, why the vehicle stops, what the situation is in real time. So that is a very important uh, feature. By the way, it is also in different countries in this world uh, uh, mandatory to have this kind of uh, uh, intercom system there. So this RCO will inform the passenger what's going on while uh, this person which we call human in the loop is investigating what is actually happening. Why did the car stop? Um, he has all dashboards and all the software tools and all the visibility tools to uh, check the surroundings of the car, check, checks the inside of the car, checks and analyzes what is actually happening uh, with all his uh, tools and the dashboards he has. And uh, then once the situation is identified, let's say it is uh, if the vehicle stops behind a car and the car, the autonomous vehicle software of that vehicle doesn't go around a vehicle, for example, what stops in front of them forever and the autonomous vehicle software of that particular AV doesn't go around that vehicle. Yeah. So when I'm talking about these cases, this actually happens, right? So some autonomous vehicle software should actually control that and should go around there. But there are many thousand millions of uh, corner cases, we call them. So in this case, the RCO can actually take over control of that particular autonomous vehicle from a remote monitoring and control center, drives around the obstacles, or clears the situation while all the time uh, interacting with the passenger, what is actually happening, right? If there's an accident, he can even uh, interact with the uh, first responders or get um, help uh, on site. While, while he is doing that, of course, he's informing the passengers, goes around the, um, uh, the obstacle and then can yield back control uh, to these autonomous vehicles, and the vehicle then continues uh, on the path 
where it is supposed to go. So these procedures, of course, we have uh, tested uh, uh, with several um, uh, vehicles already. And now we can argue that the autonomous vehicle software should actually um, solve these problems uh, itself. Well, it does uh, to a certain extent, but there are many, many of those corner cases where it doesn't. And therefore, we have this human in the loop, and we normally calculate right now is, uh, uh, you know, nobody did that in this world or only a few companies. We have this one RCO, uh, remote control operators, then um, monitor up to five vehicles. And then, of course, when it interacts with this, with this vehicle, it can only do that with one vehicle at one uh, point in time. So that means uh, then uh, the RCO clears the situation, moves, uh, gives control back to the AV, and the situation is clear, is cleared. So um, many, many cases will be there that the software will uh, be fine and will solve a lot of cases itself. But there are uh, millions and millions of corner cases where we have um, a possibility to have a human in the loop and that human can take over control of a transportation uh, shuttle. We call them uh, you know, toasters, but it could be also a bus, an autonomous vehicle bus. It could be also all sorts of um, AVs vehicles. So we work with uh, different vendors in, in that case. So um, yeah, we are, we are open to work with a lot of companies together uh, you know, and also with several communities such as yours to see how can we actually improve lives uh, of uh, people and how can we also reduce um, uh, um, worldwide accidents in the world. And we hope all and we know all that uh, autonomous vehicle is uh, about to happen and is actually happening right now. And we're very excited about the future. I think, Ron, you are mute. All right. How about now? Now you, now we hear you. Okay. okay, good. So just to kind of summarize before I move over to um, to Tyler, basically the idea is that the vehicle is driving itself, it's doing its own thing, but there's a human monitoring the vehicle at all times who can step in when they need to for the amount of time that they need to. And when they do, they have full video and audio communication with the vehicle and the passengers inside. Um, and that's so that's really the human in the loop concept you know, at the very simplest. Excellent. So Tyler, um, Waymo, you know, you, you referenced, uh, is providing uh, trips in Phoenix. Uh, it's been operating in Phoenix for quite a while. Uh, it's operating now in San Francisco. Um, and you are just about to launch a service, if you haven't already, in a test mode in Austin. Can you just share kind of what is the basic approach uh, that for Waymo and, and Waymo One, your ride-hailing service in terms of how does it work? And if you could be specific um, as to how you have adapted the Waymo One platform and service to uh, meet the needs of folks that are blind or have low vision. Sure. Um, so I guess first, a quick clarification. So yeah, like you know, we've talked about today, we have a fully autonomous ride-hailing service for public riders in Phoenix. Uh, in San Francisco, in Phoenix, it's open to everybody. Uh, so, you know, if you're in Phoenix right now, you can download the Waymo One app um, and, and, and hail a ride just like you would with any other uh, ride hailing provider you might be familiar with. Uh, we are also serving public riders in San Francisco. Um, there's a waitlist system right now um, for that one. 
Uh, we've announced LA as our next city for the Wimmo One ride hailing service after Phoenix and San Francisco. Uh, and then, yeah, we recently announced that we're returning to Austin to conduct testing, but um, nothing else to share about Austin uh, at this time on, on service or anything like that. Definitely excited about testing Austin, though. Um, Austin has like a pretty special place in, in Waymo's history. Um, it's for Steve Mahan, uh, who's legally blind, actually became the first person to ride in a uh, fully autonomous vehicle back in 2015 in one of our Firefly um, prototype test vehicles. Um, so that's a bit about sort of the, the current state of the service. Um, in terms of how you know ride hailing works, uh, if you're if you're familiar with any other uh, you know human-based ride hailing, uh, you're already pretty familiar with how, how Waymo One works. So we have a uh, for Waymo One we have which is our uh, what we call our service. We have a, a fleet of um, fully autonomous ride hailing vehicles that are serving riders 24/7. Um, so you download the Waymo One app. Um, and speaking a bit to, you know, like you mentioned, um, accessibility and, and how we've sort of adapted the experience. Um, so our, our Waymo One app is fully screen reader enabled um, from start to finish, um, which is especially helpful for, you know, low vision and, and blind folks, of course. Um, and then, you know, once you sign up, um, you're, you know, you enter where you want to go, um, whether it's a business or address or, or whatever it may be. Um, and then uh, once you request, just like you might be familiar with, you can see the, uh, the progress of the car and you know, the ETA is displayed and again, all, all screen reader enabled. Um, and then once the, the vehicle arrives, um, you know, we've, we've built some features and we can talk more in detail later um, around you know, how we help folks find the car with audio and haptics and, and things like that. But you know, at a high level, a fully autonomous vehicle, um, you know, completely empty um, pulls up, you're able to control everything from, from the app, whether it's you know editing your pickup or drop-off location or unlocking the car when it arrives. Um, once you get in, uh, the car will take you to your destination. Um, and then uh, you know throughout the ride, again, you could have full control of everything through the app. Um, and um, you know, once you exit, uh, we also give directions to from where the car drops you off to your final destination, just in case it's not right in front of the door or something like that. Um, that's generally how, how things work at, at a high level. Excellent. Appreciate that. Okay. Um, let us move now to Mike. Um, so Mike, you're just thinking about, you know, you, because you work with the, the manufacturing side of the industry um, and you've really worked in, you know, with manufacturers who um, have created vehicles for the consumer market. You talked about Mercedes Benz, you talked about uh, Chrysler, one, one of the things that many within the blind low vision community have wanted for, for a long, long time is the ability to go down the street to the dealership, buy a vehicle, put it in their garage and drive it. And, and so I'm going to ask you just a couple of questions from your perspective, you know, as, as kind of an industry expert, do you believe that, that the personal ownership model is going to look the same uh, with autonomous vehicles? And I think now we're probably not talking, obviously, about transit-style vehicles, but more about the smaller vehicles. Do you believe there is a, a market for a personal ownership market? Um, and, and if so, what is the industry doing to create vehicles in that space that are going to be accessible for, for all of the people who are in that potential market, including people who are blind or have low vision? 
Okay, Ron, uh, maybe let me start with the second part of your question. Before we talk about future ownership, maybe I talk a little bit about, you know, what's been done in the industry to make sure that autonomous vehicles are also going to be available for, uh, you know, people with uh, with, a with disabilities. Um, just like Harold said, I think we all, you know, agree that, you know, the ultimate goal for autonomous vehicles is to be a vehicle for, for everyone, right? Meaning a truly inclusive and accessible car. So, the, you know, the, the perfect autonomous car is going to be an inclusive one. And considering that we have what here in the US, you know, over 40 million people, 13, 50% of the population with some kind of disability, obviously autonomous vehicles present a really unique opportunity to extend mobility freedom, especially to those people with disabilities who don't have access to it today, either because they live in rural areas or just cannot afford it to buy a maybe today specially designed or retrofitted accessible car. Um, again, the good news is that a lot of manufacturers have already, you know, recognized that, that, you know, the perfect autonomous car will be an inclusive one. So it's great to see that some manufacturers already, you know, established structured dialogue uh, with the disability community and also utilize and integrate their experience and technology knower that they have today. Uh, like I mentioned, Mercedes already today producing special driving aids for people with disability for their development of autonomous vehicles. So great examples are, are Cruise, who's owned by, uh, General Motors, I think, Cruise in the U.S. I even have a you know a, a partnership with the Association for the for the you know people with uh, visual disabilities, but also Volkswagen and Toyota are great great examples of manufacturers that are reached out to the disability community. But obviously, we need more manufacturers, you know, especially in the non-public sector, more manufacturers to follow these examples and engage actively engage with the disability community. Um, obviously, other standard uh, autonomous technology already available today will you know, benefit also people with disability. I'm just thinking about things like voice recognition or voice voice control. Um, but in, in addition, uh, you know, to further enhance accessibility issues with other manufacturers that are also in the field of uh, autonomous vehicles, I think we also need to focus and you know certainly need legislation support to make uh, autonomous cars available to the public in the near future. So I'm, it's it's very encouraging to see, you know, I mean, you saw it probably in the news that, that NHTSA now, uh, you know, issued a proposal for an alternative AV regulatory program under which companies could potentially deploy larger numbers of self-driving vehicles in, you know, more than the current 2,500 unit level under the new proposed uh, AV safety, transparency, and evaluation program, which they call it AV step for safety, transparency, and evaluation. And uh, this is following what the uh, Department of Transportation already started uh, back in uh, 2020, an interesting initiative for autonomous cars, which did include already manufacturers like Chrysler and Crows, but also Waymo and Uber to provide test data and to discuss and improve uh, safety requirements as well as public engagement for the future autonomous vehicles. That initiative was called AV test and it can be uh, accessed online today. So this was then followed by uh, the Department of Transportation Inclusive Design Challenge in 2021, specifically launched to improve accessibility for commercial passenger autonomous cars. And uh, you know, to show that they're really serious about it, the, the government and Department of Transportation, they spent $5 million on that inclusive design challenge and rewards to the 10 final participants for their proposal. And also you probably saw most recently as part of the 33rd anniversary of ADA, there was a meeting held at the White House, you know, with Vice President Harris and, and Secretary Butinak, where they invited also advocates from the disability community to discuss future improvements of accessibility within transportation in general. So there's a lot of focus 
on accessible mobility um, right now. Um, one second here. Just need to. Oh, just lost my line here. Sorry. That that that's really good, and we'll have time to probably dig a little deeper if, if folks yeah. have questions. But that's a really good summary, and I appreciate it. Um, just I'm gonna just and we I want to kind of go a little quick here to get through the last couple of questions for each of you. Um, I want to just talk about the, what I think are some of the biggest concerns that our community has, and I want to ask each of you a very kind of quick question around safety and accessibility. Um, and so I'll start with Tyler. And, and Tyler, I'll, I'll ask the question this way. Um, one of the big concerns that people have with riding in a vehicle is the vehicle is the scenario. The vehicle's broken down on the side of the road and the passenger's in the vehicle and they're not sure what to do next. And there's nobody else around. And if it's a person who's blind or visually impaired, you know, they're not in a position probably, especially if it's, you know, in a in a situation high traffic, there's not you know they don't have a lot of options. What is Waymo doing now to think about uh, to think about that edge case of vehicle on the side of the road broken down, blind low vision passenger? Uh, you know what what are you all doing to kind of address that scenario? Sure. Um, so I, I guess just just to start, um, you know, we've been connecting with with riders with accessibility needs as well as organizations and advocacy groups for for years, really, to make sure that everything we do is uh, accessible and inclusive as possible. In particular, we're, we're super proud of the the Waymo Accessibility Network, which we formally started last year, uh, to really bring together uh, disability advocates who who share our mission um, to improve access, um, mobility. And, and safety in our communities. And so, you know, these collaborations and feedback from riders directly has resulted in the creation of many of the features and experiences um, that uh, you'll see today um, uh, on the Waymo One uh, ride hailing service. And so particularly on the, on the safety aspect you mentioned, Ron, um, you know, safety is at the core of everything we do. Um, in our first million miles without a human behind the wheel, uh, there were no reported injuries no collisions with pedestrians or cyclists, and you know, every vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle collision involved poor driving by a human. Um, in the case of you know, what we call trip interruptions, um, you know, where a vehicle may need to pull over or something like that, which um, you know, can happen with any, any vehicle, really. Um, but you know, for us, these are super rare events. Um, but in, in the case of these rare events, I'd probably say a couple things. Um, the first one is that any in-car announcements um, you know, that are delivered both visually uh, on the passenger screen and audibly uh, with the car's interior speakers. Um, so, you know, the rider's always fully aware of what's going on and it, what they should be doing um, if any special instructions are needed. Um, and then I guess the, the second big thing I'd say is that even though our cars are, are fully autonomous, uh, help is always there when you need it. Um, so we have 24 seven rider support agents that can be reached by call or text uh, or chat, I guess, uh, and if the situation warrants it, um, rider support can also proactively reach out, um, for example, by calling into the car using the car's interior speakers and microphone um, or to your phone um, to talk to the rider. And then we also have a 24 seven uh, fleet response team uh, that can you know, quickly respond to any of these types of situations when they do occur and then make sure that the rider always safely gets to their destination. Um, so a lot of things get, you know, go into the design of, of the features and the experience to, to handle these cases um, and make sure that you know, everything is um, uh, always accessible, but also, you know, like I said, um, making sure that you know, we get humans involved um, when there's a, a really special situation that needs uh, more high-touch help. Awesome. 
So Harold, kind of a similar question, and you answered this uh, in, mostly in part of an earlier question. So I just want to spend a minute kind of digging into one thing that you talked about. You talked about um, when, when an, one of the vehicles on the guidance platform stops for some reason, maybe it's because of another vehicle or there's a mechanical issue or whatever, you have a human in the loop. So you've, you've already addressed that part of the question. Mm -hmm. um, the question that I would have is you talked about the, the remote control operator can communicate with the vehicle uh, or communicate to the passengers in the vehicle. What happens when the passengers need to exit the vehicle? Do, do, have you, have you um, kind of modeled that scenario and what's your approach for how to assist passengers if they've got to exit a vehicle? Say for example, it's the vehicle you know, is broken down and, it, and people need to exit for safety reasons or something like that. Have you thought through that and, and do, have, have you modeled that? Yeah, so um, we have thought about a couple of features uh, there, which goes into that, what was earlier said, let's, uh, like uh, information, why does the vehicle stop? And now let's say you need to access um, uh, or you need to uh, debord, the, you know, and uh, go uh, out of the vehicles. So that means we, we have to find information set, oh, that's what we're doing right now. Information set, where are we and how, how can we help you uh, then when the vehicle is not, uh, you know, continuing, for example, mm -hmm. right? So that means um, we, uh, how can you find a different car? How can we help you to find a different car? So these are uh, uh, scenarios where we work with industry partners to see, you know, what is happening, get to that particular spot and pick up the people from there, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but that can be done. We also, uh, once the RCO, the remote control operator knows that uh, a vehicle is broken down and we will not, or it isn't an accident or whatever, we immediately will uh, follow up with um, hopefully partners, which we are talking to, uh, you know, to pick up the people uh, in, in the car. Um, the more... Um, um, a difficult uh, situation is um, where and how can we help uh, uh, people with disabilities to get uh, into the car. So we have about two partners. Um, uh, one is originally from uh, uh, New Zealand, but I also have an, um, uh, um, uh, an office here in the US where we try to find uh, features and how to make the access to the vehicle with, um, with uh, of course, uh, voice controls and haptics much easier to board that vehicle, uh, which is, I'm, I'm, I would say it's still not solved to my total satisfaction, <laughs> Yeah, but uh, we, we are working uh, on that. And as I said earlier in my introduction, <clears throat> We are absolutely open and willing uh, to listen to communities, uh, several communities, and how can we make things better? And uh, we are not claiming our engineers and people are not claiming that we know everything. Um, and we, we, we would like to work also with uh, communities like uh, yours. Uh, and how can we make that uh, much easier and better? In particular, the situation is how to board an autonomous transportation service. I'm going to stay with you and we're going to kind of move to the last part of our, our panel before we open this up for, for the audience. But I'm going to stay with you for a minute um, and have you kind of just wrap up with one more question. Um, so the ACB, uh, this group that you know we're, we're on with today here, 
we are holding our 2024 annual conference and convention in Jacksonville. And Jacksonville, uh, because of your partnership with the Jacksonville Transportation Authority, the transit system in the in the region, is about to become either the first or one of the first public transit agencies in the country to launch a fully autonomous transit route. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, it won't be too, too far from where our hotel is going to be located. What can you uh, tell us about what our attendees can expect if they decide to come out and try uh, the, the route that you all are, are working with the JTA to bring into autonomous service uh, at the end of this year? Very good. Yeah. Well, you can ima imagine that we are very excited uh, that we won the RFP um, with the Jacksonville Transportation Authority last year to provide operation services uh, to uh, the uh, authorities. And you saw also that we did on May 31st uh, uh, co-host an event together uh, with the Autonomous National Vehicle Day in the U.S., which was widely successful. And uh, some of the blind community was also there. Um, so what we're doing with them right now is the following. We are upgrading uh, some of their vehicles with our teleoperation system, which in principle consists of uh, additional cameras, uh, our vehicle teleoperation unit, and some other sensors, and of course, our software and the remote monitoring and control center. We're doing that right now. And um, that is uh, going then into an acceptance test uh, with uh, JTA, Jacksonville Transportation Authority, uh, in mid-September. So meaning uh, the authority with their team, um, they will come to our headquarters, visit there, they're doing with us um, a quality test uh, there in the, uh, yeah, in the August timeframe. And then uh, September, I think it's... Uh, uh, 23rd or something in this area we start acceptance test in Jacksonville once that um, acceptance test is successful uh, they are, are planning uh, to the next phase to um, deploy their service with some of the selected vehicles uh, at Bay Street for phase one in Jacksonville that should happen from our point of view and the first quarter of 2024. So I assume uh, that phase one around Bay Street will get into service. And of course, this is highly dependent on the management team of JTA um, uh, that their first uh, UTC, uh, U2C project in Bay Street will happen uh, um, around about the first quarter 2024. Awesome. Well, lots of acronyms there, but here's the simple, here's the simple version, folks come to Jacksonville, there might be an autonomous transit route you can take. Um, and if there is, we will be talking about it for certain because it'll be the first in the country and that'll be pretty exciting. Yeah, one uh, uh, and, and one, one thing that we have yep. to say, and, uh, this mm -hmm. is very, very important nationally uh, that the Jacksonville Transportation Authority is the biggest uh, uh, transportation authority in the, in the United States from his uh, size. And uh, that, of course, uh, for us is uh, very, very meaningful. And they're carrying the flag right now to, uh, uh, you know, uh, deploy autonomous transportation services. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, no, it's very exciting. Um, uh, Mike, uh, just turning to you, and, and please, Harold, stay around because I'm sure we'll have questions. Um, Mike, just turning to you for one last question. Um, if you could just talk uh, as we kind of move on here about your perspective on how long do you think 
we are from larger deployment of autonomous vehicles, and particularly if you could think in terms of for private for private consumption, if you will, um, and talk about any last you know, any other obvious barriers that you think we need to clear uh, in order to make that a reality. And that's a big question. So if you could just hit the highlights in a minute or so, because you, we could probably talk about barriers and regulations and insurance for half a day, so. Yeah, yeah sorry uh, that I didn't get to answer the uh, question earlier on uh, you know ownership, but maybe we can uh, address that in the Q&A later on, because um, I think it's gonna look different in the future than it does today, especially when it comes to autonomous vehicles, but barriers and when we wanna see autonomous vehicles in the market, obviously I mentioned the barriers of, of uh, Legislation, you know, we need to make sure that legislation will allow the manufacturers to produce autonomous vehicles in more volume so we can have more pilot markets like what Waymo does in Phoenix and San Francisco. So we need more manufacturers to join the game here and, and you know, be able to um, you know, make this a feasible business case for them. And, you know, to, like I said, encourage the manufacturers to set up more pilot markets to advance, obviously, the deployment and availability of autonomous vehicles. But, of course, technology is still something that needs to be developed before it can be, you know, rolled out in, in volumes, you know, technology safety, just think about, you know, hackers, uh, cyber attacks, you know, on electric cars. So obviously that also applies to autonomous vehicles. And uh, like I said earlier, also to encourage just the manufacturers to include the accessibility, you know, disability community with their autonomous development, uh, you know, uh, activities and establish closer relations and communication, roundtable discussions, um, you know, who are, you know, destined because the disability community, they're really destined, in my opinion, to be autonomous pioneers and advocates. The government Department of Transportation should really proactively support these kind of collaborations by adding disability stakeholders to their, you know, autonomous vehicle industry, you know, testing and change programs. So I think that's really important. And um, when do we expect these cars, autonomous vehicles, based on overcoming these barriers to really hit you know, in certain kind of volume into the mass market. So the latest forecasts say, well, probably with the start of the next decade in 2030, we're going to see autonomous vehicles really getting to be rolled out in like, you know, geofenced urban city areas first. Okay, that will start in 2030 based on the latest estimates. And then in 2040, it should be rolled in volumes, you know, to areas also outside of city and, and urban areas. And uh, market share of new vehicles sold right now, the latest numbers I saw that, there are predictions between 30% of all cars sold between 30 and 50% by 2050. So that's kind of, again, we're still looking at decades, you know, city, major metropolitan areas in volume 2030, you know, more widespread 2040, and then market share above 30%, probably as of 2050. So it's a long way, but it's coming. It's just a matter of, you know, the timeline. Hey, Ron, if, if, uh, if you allow me to just uh, double click on that, what Mike just said, um, one of our uh, first um, use cases, and there are three customers behind it, Mike, right now, is exactly what you just mentioned. Uh, one of our design criteria and go-to-market criteria are uh, threefold. Number one, geofenced areas. Number two, low speed, up to 25 miles an hour. And number three, uh, dedicated routes. Uh, these are the area of smart cities, a huge university complex, huge business parks, which we have here in, uh, in uh, Florida, uh, the biggest business park uh, in, in, in Florida, which we're working with as customers. And these are the three, three movers, first movers, and they are happening right now. And that, of course, is very encouraging. 
so that's our, uh, those are exciting um, kinds of developments. And it does sound like a long time, but it's really, it's really not. Uh, there's a lot to do. So I'm going to just very, very quickly give Tyler a second. Um, and then I want to open this up for Q&A. Um, so Tyler, just in like, just a short, what you can share. You mentioned, of course, San Francisco, you mentioned Phoenix, you mentioned Los Angeles. Can you share anything about timing for LA? And can you just share, are there any other cities that are in the near term that you can announce yet? Sure. Um, yeah. So LA, LA is next. Uh, can't share specific timings yet, um, but we have already done our, our first fully autonomous ride um, in, uh, in, in LA. So we have, you know, that's something uh, that we've reached is like a milestone in testing. So making progress. Um, no other cities that can announce at this time, but I guess besides additional cities, maybe the one other quick thing I'll say is that, you know, there's two ways really to think about expansion. One is, you know, more cities, but two is also covering more area in our existing cities to help people get more places um, they're trying to go. And so we've also been steadily making progress on this front. So for example, Phoenix territory now covers 225 square miles, which is the largest autonomous service area in the world. Um, and some public riders in, in San Francisco now have access to the entire city, including uh, the downtown area. So um, that's sort of the other way we're thinking about expansion and expect more progress awesome. on, on that front too. We're gonna we're gonna open this. Um, first off, thank you um, to to all of you. We're gonna open this up to the audience now. And what I would um, ask, and Sheila's gonna um, call on folks, um, is I'd like for in the interest of time, because um, we can talk about this all day. Um, is I'd like folks to ask one question, no multi-parters. Um, keep your questions super brief um, and we'll take as many as we can until uh, the top of the hour. So Sheila, go for it. All right, area code 650 ending in 155. Please tell us who you are and unmute. Hello. Yep, gotcha. This is Roger Peterson. All right, Roger, and, go uh, ahead. I just wanted to mention to the folks that uh, I just, I live in Mountain View, uh, a couple of miles down the road from Google, uh, but uh, I, I have, my concern is when you talked about stopping and having, a be, I'm being in a car that stopped and I don't know why, or maybe I even do know why, one thing that, you it's good that you have a notion of finding another car and all that. But one thing I want really want to know as a blind person is where I am. I want you to provide me with some kind of street address or something that tells me where I am. Because even if I don't know the territory, if I have to talk to police or anybody else, I have to know where I am. Thank you. Excellent. That's a great point. <clears throat> sure. Sheila. Do you want me to take that one, Ron? This is Tyler. Uh, yeah, if you want to make a quick comment, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, I think just directly to speak to that, um, you know, one of one of the features that that we've built uh, in in partnership with a lot of our um, riders is uh, what we call assistive in car audio. Excuse me, in assistive in car audio. And so this is a, a toggle, something you can enable in the accessibility settings of the Waymo One app. And so uh, basically, what that does is it uses the when that's enabled, the car's interior speakers will basically narrate your ride for you. So every street you're turning on to, where you are, uh, if you're if the car's slowing down for construction or yielding to an emergency vehicle, it will narrate that all with voice. And so it keeps, um, you know, especially low vision and blind riders, um, 
we've found uh, really uh, kind of apprised of, of the situation and yeah, to your point, um, where they are at all times uh, uh, along the trip and, what's, and, and about their surroundings. Yeah, and uh, Ron, uh, if I can um, uh, also top on that. Um, Roger, great question. As I mentioned, we have a video audio intercom in the vehicle. That means also that the passenger can ask questions to the remote control operator. So your question then would be, Roger, where the hell I, am I, <laughs> right? And how do I get out of here, right? So you and the RCO is responsible for that to get you to the right, uh, to, to get you to the answers. Excellent. Appreciate that. Sheila, next question. Robin. Hi, this is Robin Wallen in St. Louis. Hi, Ron. Um, I have kind of a weird question. And this is just something that has always stuck with me about the autonomous cars like Waymo when you call them. And that is about the cleanliness factor. Because as someone who has stepped into a taxi that someone has actually thrown up in and the driver hasn't actually um, cleaned it up, is there a way that they are monitoring the cleanliness of these cars that are being used for ride hailing? Tyler. Yeah, this is Tyler. Um, yes, this is actually something we've heard from our riders that is something they, they love most about Waymo, that, you know, when you're getting into other forms, you know, of, of ride hailing or, or taxi services, you know, you don't really know what you're going to get, which I think is what you're getting at. Um, with us, yeah, with you know, with that, giving away too much we, we do constantly monitor uh the the cleanliness of of the cars uh we have dedicated operations staff um that is responsible for keeping the interior and exterior um really clean so when you hail a waymo you know exactly what you're getting um it's a, a clean uh, you know fresh car um to yourself and so um that's something that we think is a, is a big advantage and hopefully uh, something that our riders will continue to really enjoy tyler just to build on that question um so I, I, I hear Robin's question from a slightly different direction, which is it's the middle of the day. This car has been out in service all day, picking up and dropping off. How is the car monitored throughout the day um, when it's not maybe going back to a, a base to be, you know, service? Yeah. Um, so, you know, like I mentioned earlier, we, for example, we, we do have 24 seven rider support agents. And so, um, you know, when they call into the car, they also have the ability to view the, the cameras of the car. Um, and that's something that's like, uh, you know, really helpful to riders sometimes so they can see what's going on if they need to assist with the situation. So, um, you know, there, there are similar things there that we can do to, to, to monitor and, and to make sure the car is always um, fresh and, and ready for the next rider. If it's not, then, you know, we can take it, send it back to the depot, like you mentioned, clean it, and then, you know, put it back into service. Next question. All right, Michael Byington and Ron, you have two minutes to the top of the hour. Perfect. Michael? You are our last questioner this morning, Mike, until we get to the next panel. Go for it. All right. Uh, I am in Topeka, Kansas, and my question is, uh, I understand the expansion into the other larger cities, but how much longer will it take, would you estimate, before you start getting into the second tier of cities that are perhaps 100,000 uh, or within that neighborhood of population. And then on further down, how quickly is it going to be possible uh, to actually get uh, autonomous cars into rural areas? Thank you. I'll leave that for whoever wants it. 
This is Tyler. From from the from the Waymo perspective, you know, unfortunately, not able to share anything on specific you know dates or, or timing. Um, but I, I guess I can just briefly say that I'm super excited about our, our plans, and um, you know, obviously, we want to bring Waymo to as many people as possible. So, uh, you know, that that's something that that we're constantly working towards. Um, yeah, and I'd go back to what Mike shared a minute ago, and Mike, if you want to add anything, you know, 2030 for cities. 2040 for uh, for you know kind of a more into the or, you know, suburban and and smaller communities um, and then you know increasing saturation after that. Do you think do you think those numbers really take into account smaller cities like Topeka? You know you could put Wichita in that category and and you know lots of other cities uh, that are kind of in that mid-sized well, range. Yeah, Ron. I mean, again, those those forecasts are really like for you know sizable volume, right? You know, when when cars will be available in in, in, in really mass volume. But uh, you know, to the question and, and to what what Tyler said, I think, like I said earlier, you know, I think if we get the support from the government and we have legislation where the the car manufacturers going to be encouraged to produce more volume of automotive autonomous vehicles, and the business case is becoming more feasible, I would, you know, I'm I'm pretty hopeful that we're going to see more pilot markets even before 2030. I, I think the the you know the hope is here that you know be beyond you know Waymo and Cruise that we're going to get more manufacturers into this uh, uh, into the game here to come up with different pilot markets uh, you know larger and smaller populations even before 2030 again provided that that the legislation is there you know and uh, that the business case becomes more feasible for for the manufacturers so I think there's the, and this is a I think this is the direction the government wants to go right now the U.S. government so I'm hopeful that even before 2030 before we see the volume. Uh, you know, hitting uh, uh, the market, I think there's there's a good chance that we see more of that manufacturers setting up more pilots, which will be great. Yep, that's excellent. And actually, um, first off, I, we're going to close this part out, but I did want to just acknowledge there is a there's a company called May Mobility, and they're in the transit side, but they are specializing in shuttles in smaller markets. Uh, they they have announced a pilot in. Uh, um, Rochester, uh, Rochester, Minnesota, I believe uh, that you know, that they're working on, and and um, you know they're 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 also working with other cities as well. But th there are companies that are specifically working to bring some of these pilots to smaller and rural areas because once you map an area, it doesn't matter if it's urban or suburban or rural. Um, it's mapped. It can be it can be served. So so I, th I think there are there is encouragement for. You know, smaller communities. I, I just want a couple of words, and then we have a video that we're going to queue up. Um, I want to thank our our, our panelists. Um, you all are welcome to stay around for the second half. Um, I want to encourage all of you if you're on LinkedIn, um, you know, go find Guidant Corp and follow them. They publish a lot of good content. Uh, Mike is pretty active uh, on LinkedIn as well, and of course Waymo. You can find Waymo just about everywhere. Uh, I would encourage you to follow these these companies. They're doing a lot in the industry. Uh, they have a lot to share, uh, and you can really be apprised of what's going on in the industry. And of course, that's something that that I'm trying to do as well. So, um, if we have that video, we're going to shift our focus uh, to more of a um, to, of a community side. So we've talked now to the industry. We're going to shift more to the community, and we have a little video. Are we ready with that? Yes, we are. You should right. be able to hear it soon. All right, let's do it. All right, here we go. Hi, friends. It's Tristan Snyder reminding you that this is a 3D audio experience. So put on your headphones and let's go. 
I was notified in the app that the Waymo was there to pick me up, but I noticed it was parked a few doors down from my address. So, there's a button in the app that I was able to use to... Honk the horn, so I could find the car. Given our time constraints, I had to abridge our 3D experience, so there will be a few jumps in audio as we go. Good evening. To begin your ride, press the start ride button in your app. Heading to sip coffee and beer. Please make sure your seatbelt is fastened. For any questions, press the call support button to speak with a rider support agent. The car is an electric sedan. I'm not sure the make and model. I'm sitting in the back on the left-hand side. In the middle at the center console is a passenger screen, which seems to mirror the buttons in the app. The buttons are car view, map view, music, riding tips, and call support. Proceeding on North Hayden Road. Apparently there's a map on the screen that shows our car and the traffic around us, and it shows a time to the destination. There's also a pull over button. There are some tactile buttons on the ceiling, but they're unlabeled in braille. I know there is a start button, a pull over button, and a call support button. There are also cameras in the car, so the support agents can see what's happening and assist if needed. Proceeding on East Indian School Road. With the music button, if you're an iOS user, you do have to install Google Assistant, but then you can tie it into your Apple Music or anything else and it will play your music in the car. The first time I rode in one of these cars, sometimes the movements were jerky, but this time the acceleration, deceleration, and turns were all as smooth as butter, even when finding a spot in the parking lot. We've arrived at your destination. To exit, pull on the door handle or contact rider support for assistance. All right, that was uh, that was a very interesting. I had not seen this video, and um, I'm a, I'm just a little bit disappointed, Tristan. You were in my town, and and, and I would have loved to uh, join you, but anyway, we'll let that go for now. Um, so we want to just talk. You know, this this is really where this technology hits, you know, where the rubber hits the road for our community. Not just Waymo, but using it and actually experiencing it and interacting with it. Before we move into the conversation, I do want to just quickly acknowledge Tristan uh, for putting that together. Um, and I, the, the full version is over on the uh, Pride Connection podcast, um, which I believe you can, uh, we will include uh, a link to that podcast in the show, in the show notes. Um, but uh, that is definitely something I would encourage you to check out. Uh, and of course, if you're in an area where these services exist, um, you know, certainly something that you can, uh, 
you know, you can check out for yourself as well. Um, okay, so we are now going to talk to the community. And uh, just to set this up very quickly, uh, that, yeah, some of us are really very comfortable with this technology. Some of us aren't too sure. Some of us are probably a little bit hesitant. And what we really wanted to do was to engage a conversation about uh, autonomous vehicles um, from the perspective of our community. Uh, what's it like to be in one? Uh, what's it like to, uh, you know, what are the advocacy issues? What are the concerns we have? And, you know, what do we want this technology and how do we want it to work? Um, and we, we also want to talk about uh, guide dogs. You know, how, for those of us who travel with service animals, you know, what is, what are the, you know, what are the implications? So we have a panel uh, that's going to, we're going to chat with for the next uh, 30 minutes or so. Uh, and then again, we'll open up for some uh, comments and questions. So first we have Claire Stanley. Uh, Claire uh, is working with the National Disability Rights Network uh, and she's been involved in this issue for a long time, um, uh, both for ACB and for her new employer at NDRN. Uh, we have Clark Rockville, who is uh, Director of uh, Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for ACB. Uh, and I know Clark has been involved with this issue for a while. He's worked with some of the providers of this technology uh, representing ACB, so he's very well versed. Uh, we have Jeff Tom, who's Director of uh, Governmental Affairs for uh, California Council of the Blind, uh, and they've got a lot going on with autonomous vehicles right now in California uh, that, that um, he's in right in the middle of. Uh, and then um, my wife, Lisa Brooks, uh, is going to speak, and she's ridden in vehicles, so we'll talk about that a little bit. And then finally, we invited Lucas Frank uh, from the Seeing Eye uh, to talk about, uh, you know, from a training perspective, from a service animal perspective, you know, how does this technology work? So, so let's dive in. And I, I want to just bring our panelists in and, and ask you each a question uh, to kind of get us started. If you could just take a minute and share just a couple of things. One is what got you interested in this issue of autonomous vehicles? Uh, and if you could also share, if you've written in one, if you did, what was it? And were you alone or was there a safety attendant or a driver in the vehicle? Um, and we'll start with, uh, let's start with Claire. Sorry, Ron, can you hear me now? We can. Thanks. Yeah, so thanks, Ron. This is uh, Claire Stanley with NDRN. Um, so what got me interested? So it's, it's kind of twofold. Uh, one, of course, is someone who is blind. I am super jazzed about the uh, you know, opportunities that autonomous vehicles are going to bring to our community. Um, but when I put my work hat on, I work in the public policy space for persons with disabilities. So going up to Capitol Hill and advocating for access for people with disabilities across the community. So physical, sensory, developmental, et cetera. Um, and we're really excited about the potential for what um, doors this can open, but we're also really nervous that like in so many areas, um, if you don't design the cars right from the beginning, if you don't design the legislation correct from the beginning, um, that our entire community could be inadvertently um, left out. So really from the policy side, just excited about the potentials, but wanting to make sure that we really are there raising our hands up in the down, you know, jumping up, down, raising our hands in the air saying, don't forget about us. And have you ridden in an autonomous vehicle yet? I have not, unfortunately. I, oh I, I have not. <laughs> You've got to come out to Phoenix when it's not 110. <laughs> so, so Clark, how about you? 
Yeah, thanks so much, Ron, and thanks for having me as a part of this conversation. Hi, everyone. Clark Rockfall, ACB's Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs. Uh, what, what got me excited and what keeps me excited in the conversation about autonomous vehicles is just knowing all of the transportation barriers that our members and people who are blind and low vision face on an on daily and ongoing basis, right? Uh, you know, I, I'm fortunate, fortunate that my wife is sighted. So I have a Uber who can take me places that I want to go and get me there safely, right? And Ron, I hear you chuckling in the background. But how many of our members that live in rural or suburban parts of the country don't have access to reliable public transit, paratransit, or a family and friends network that is available at a beck and call, right? So that that's where the real excitement comes about the potential of autonomous vehicles. And certainly, uh, since I've been involved with ACB in 2019, it was actually 2018, 2019, the AV Start Act was a legislative imperative for the American Council of the Blind to create a uniform national framework for the rollout and regulation of uh, accessible and usable autonomous vehicles that are available for people with disabilities. So that's where my excitement comes from. I have had the um, the opportunity to ride in both a Waymo autonomous ride in Santa Monica, California, when I was there in March as part of the CSUN Assistive Technology Conference this year, as well as a cruise autonomous vehicle in Austin, Texas this year. The Waymo ride um, in Santa Monica, they still had a test driver behind the wheel, you know, doing the basically the look ma no hands, but just there just to make sure that things went according to plan. Um, but absolutely loved how the vehicle even showed on the map, so I'm told, as well as identified road obstacles, stopped for a jaywalker, yielded to a car doing a uh, your run-of-the-mill California stop and just rolling through a stop sign. Um, and when I did hit the, uh, you know, the end ride um, emergency button, the vehicle safely executed a left-hand turn and then pulled over to the right curb. So I was very impressed by the Waymo ride, even with the support uh, personnel in the vehicle. Austin, Texas was a little bit different, and I think we'll hear probably some of this type of experience from Lisa as well, but it was while my wife and I were in Austin together, and uh, it was a Friday night. The vehicles are only allowed to operate. Uh, fortunately, that week, they bumped them up to 9 p.m. till 5 a.m. Otherwise, we would have had to take a power nap and you know get up and out at 10 p.m., uh, you know, we really burn the midnight oil here, uh, yeah. Clark and Greta. That's us, party animals. Um, but it was it was a Friday night in Austin, Texas, around the University of Texas Austin campus, so Party Central, and the vehicle did a great job. Uh, no support personnel in the vehicle. Um, okay. My wife was very apprehensive at first, but she wound up taking a nap after 15 minutes because guess what? 
it drove like a car and uh you know drove differently than she would have drove but very safely avoiding pedestrians parked vehicles um and had a great experience so i excellent yeah happy to be a part of the conversation and thanks for letting me share jeff tom good morning good afternoon everyone thank you ron for allowing me to be part of this august panel Uh, it was very interesting to listen to the prior panel I, I basically I want to associate myself with the comments that um, Clark and Claire have just made. How could it? It's just such a no-brainer to be interested from a, a blindness perspective in in autonomous vehicles, and it is going to ultimately be a game changer for us. I, I don't think there's any doubt about it. Um, but it's only going to be a game changer if we realize that we need to keep the pressure on. Um, the autonomous vehicle community. Their interests aren't always going to coincide with ours. Um, you know, they, they, as it is, you know, I remember reading five or six years ago that they felt that these would be on the market by 2025 or maybe even earlier. Well, now we're hearing 2030. So, you know, there are issues for autonomous vehicle manufacturers and um, if we are not, you know, collaborating, but also making sure that our interests are known, our interests will not be fully, um, you know, fully implemented in terms of autonomous vehicles. No, I have not ridden in one, but I would love to do so. And any time or day of the week that I'd have a chance to do it, I'd be happy to do it. All right. And Lisa? So I'm fortunate to live here in Phoenix. Um, and so we have Waymo 24-7 now. And um, it started in the suburbs. So we didn't have access for, for a while. Um, although we did know some people who were involved in the early pilot days when they were in the suburbs. Um, and um, while we can't go everywhere in Phoenix, the, the places we can go is expanding. And we've probably taken it maybe about 10 times now. And each time we've been in the car, there has not been a driver. Uh, Once we took it with our sighted son, who is 18, and um, he thought that it drove very safely. And in fact, it follows the speed limit. So you're actually a slow car on the road because nobody else follows speed limits anymore. but uh, it, it's, it's been a really wonderful experience. It's, it's very honeymoon and utopian sort of phase at first um, because it's just amazing to be able to get into a car with nobody driving. And, and as you've mentioned in different uh, presentations that you've done, Ron, as a, the first time we took it, we went on date night. And as a married couple, it was the first time we were ever in a car where it was just the two of us with nobody asking questions no driver, we could just have whatever conversation we wanted in private, um, which was really cool. Um, so there are advantages to not having a driver, and there are also some disadvantages sometimes. Um, and I don't know if we'll have a chance to speak to that, but it's been a wonderful experience. We will find the time. Uh, and last but not least, Lucas. Ah. Hi there, everybody. It's there you are. Thank you for being on the having me on the panel. 
I, I had been thinking about some of the privacy questions uh, uh, during the, the earlier uh, presentations about having a driver and being able to, the same thing happens, of course, with, with an Alexa in your, in your room. You're always wondering what's, who's listening to what. And of course, Ron and Lisa in the back of the car, one wonders. But the, um, I'm very excited about the potential of this. I've been participating in, in discussions like this for several years at the Transportation Research Board. Uh, and the timeline that the, the gentleman gave at the end of, of uh, another couple of decades before uh, this technology and, and uh, possibility becomes ubiquitous fits very tightly in with the, with the predictions that are being made or, and have been made um, at, uh, uh, at sort of sophisticated uh, technologists' conferences. Uh, but they include things there when they when they're talking about full implementation, they're talking about vehicles that will also park themselves and come when they're called. Uh, so that may be I think we'll be a little bit ahead of that timeline uh, by the 2040s and I hope to witness it. Um, I am struck by the, uh, although I agree with uh, Jeff's point about having to keep the pressure on to make this a reality. Um, I'm struck by the difference between the current accessibility, inclusivity design phase to what happened back in the 70s and early 80s with computers when we went from DOS to Windows and there was no attempt uh, at inclusivity at that time and it had to come from the aftermarket. So I think that's a testament to the power of the ADA and maybe just a general raising of consciousness uh, if I'm being optimistic, uh, but it, it's really an exciting moment. And have you ridden in an autonomous vehicle with us? Uh, I have not yet. All right. Um, well, great. Well, we're going to we're going to dive in. So about a half our panelists have and then the other half haven't. So hopefully by the end of this call, um, everybody will be curious enough to uh, at least look forward to that opportunity. And again, Jacksonville 2024, there might be autonomous vehicles uh, in that space for folks to give a try. So Lisa, let's start with you. You alluded to some of this already, uh, but you've ridden in autonomous vehicles. You've ridden uh, in Waymo down here in Phoenix. But if you could just share um, a little bit from your perspective, um, that first time, how you felt the very first time about riding in this vehicle with no driver um, and how you feel about it now um, and how, you know, just maybe how that's changed a little bit. So uh, it was when we were waiting for it, I, it was terrifying. Um, and then it arrived and it was so such a thrill and so exciting that I honestly forgot to be scared once I got in it <laughs> um, because it's such a novelty to ride in this car with nobody driving. And um, we didn't realize this until later until one of the, the kids pointed out, but like, you know, when it turns the corner, um, because it still has pedals and a steering wheel, you can see the steering wheel move by itself um, and the lights turn on and off. So that's kind of ghost-like. Um, but, but the experience, it was just fascinating. I mean, it stopped right at our front door and we've had had other experiences where in coming, when it was coming to our house to pick us up, for whatever reason, it stopped on the other side of the street. Um, so it's, it doesn't, for some reason, always seem to be consistent. Um, when I think about 
telling people whether I want to encourage them to write it. I think everyone should try it if they're brave enough. But I think you definitely have to have a spirit of adventure um, and a spirit of I'm going to explore because um, it, it's as wonderful it, as it is. It, it's not always consistent. Um, we were at a restaurant and it dropped us off in one spot. But then when the next car came to pick us up, it picked us up in a totally different spot. Um, so, you know, it, there, there's still things to be to be worked on and and um but to its credit it does have stuff in the app that um gives you instructions as far as you know that you can make the horn honk um as the video showed that was played earlier and it'll say things in your phone like you know 50 feet to your right and we had that experience um where it said 50 feet to the right but there was a bunch of bushes in the way um so we had to figure out how to navigate around those to get to where we needed to go. So um, I I will take it whenever I get the chance, but I probably won't take it if I'm in a hurry. Um, I prefer to take it now to places that I know and that I'm comfortable that, that I've been there before. So I kind of have a lay of the land, um, but that's my personality. So you know, I, Ron is a lot more adventurous than I am. So he'll, he's probably take it anywhere. Um, but, you know, everybody's different. And I just wanted to point out that, that that's something that, that people might want to consider um, and it, when they're and thinking it, about these things. And it does encourage seat seatbelts, correct? <laughs> so we did have it. Yeah, we did have a I, customer support is real and they are there monitoring um, because apparently I was so excited the first time we wrote in it. Um, that the vehicle called the call center and the call center called us in the car to let us know that one of the passengers, and it turns out it was me, <laughs> was not wearing their seatbelt properly. So um, it does have some kind of um, something. Big Brother is watching. Yes, yes, that it knows <laughs> right. these things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what we were told later, by the way, is that the vehicle, um, you are observed at the time that you enter and at the time that you exit and not at other times. Um, and that's, you know, there, there are safety reasons for that. But, but at the end of the day, um, it, you know, definitely, you know, this is a technology that, that ticks, it sounds like it ticks a little bit of getting used to, but it sounds like, you know, again, adventure, sense of adventure, sense of curiosity uh, for that first trip, because it's probably going to be something different than you've ever experienced. So, so turning to Jeff a little bit. So Jeff, Right now, you, know, you talked a little bit earlier, you alluded to what's going on in California or what well, you alluded to, just the, the need to, to be diligent um, as advocates. And right now, um, there is effort being made in California by uh, two of the companies, Waymo and Cruise, to expand operations in San Francisco. Um, and CCB and others have expressed some concerns. Um, and you know, th those are all going to get you know, kind of worked through. And there's a hearing coming up. Could you just talk about from the perspective of CCB and of your role as an advocate, you know, what excites you, what concerns do you have? And if you know it right now, where does CCB land kind of on this issue? Sure. So I want to be very clear. We are not opposing the efforts of these companies to get out there and, you know, run on the streets of San Francisco. What we want, however, is standards to be set. In this case, it's our state's Public Utilities Commission because they regulate ride hailing. 
um, in that, that part of it anyway. And so right now they have a document that's sort of, they've already gone a third of the way. They have a guidance document that says things like, well, you want, we want you to minimize the risks to, for safety and, you know, ensure as much as you can accessibility. But there's nothing prescriptive in this guidance at all. There's nothing that specifies what these companies have to do. Now, even if the standards were to say, you know, you have to do A, B, and C to get the approval to um, be 24-7, and then two years down the road, maybe you have to do D, E, and F. I'm not saying that that wouldn't be a fair way to have uh, standards drafted in terms of, you know, making sure that you're not, you know, requiring more than the technology is able to do as long as it's uh, reasonably safe at this point. But there needs to be standards before you have, in my opinion, wholesale approval for these entities, because otherwise you're going to get essentially the wild, wild west. And as you, if you don't have standards to begin the process, um, eventually, you know, it's not the companies who are going to seek these standards. They they want to be able to do what they want to do, and that is, you know, test their project products and ultimately you know, have them throughout these cities. And they, that's their within their in, sphere of interest. That's what they want to do. They want to make a profit. and But we need to protect our interests and our interests are safety and accessibility. And, you know, th these companies, if standards are, are drafted, they'll have an, a say in what the standards say. So that's really our position. Um, that no, that's very, very helpful. and and let me just turn to Clark and continue the advocacy discussion. Um, so Clark, what is ACB doing kind of at the national level uh, around the you know, the issues uh, uh, you know the 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 regulatory issue uh, for this technology and these services? And from your perspective, is there anything that state and local chapters and individuals can do uh, to support the work that ACB is doing? And you talked about the AV, uh, the AV uh, Act, and I'm blanking the name, but you can share it, um, that, that we had advocated before, which is now looking like it's coming into existence. Could you just talk about some of that? Yeah, absolutely, Ron. So uh, the AV Start Act, as we once knew it, no longer exists. Um, but just this week, actually, on the ADA anniversary, the House Energy and Commerce Committee in one of their subcommittees held a hearing on the future of autonomous vehicles. And actually, ACB uh, penned and led a, an organizational sign-on letter that had around uh, a dozen to 15 disability, national disability rights organizations join um, that this letter was sent to the, the chairwoman and ranking member of the House Energy and Commerce Committee saying, we support a national autonomous vehicle framework that takes into account accessibility and safety for both for passengers and pedestrians with disabilities. Uh, it was kept at a very high level. Uh, certainly, I don't think anyone can argue with that statement, right? Uh, national disability rights organizations want people with disabilities to be part of the conversation. We want to be safe as pedestrians. We want the technology and the vehicles to be accessible for people with disabilities as passengers. And 
certainly, if you're going to hold a hearing on the anniversary, the 33rd anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, people with disabilities and accessibilities must be part of the conversation. Um, so that's, that is our overarching position. Um, to Jeff's point, and to, you know, the avoiding the wild, wild west, I would also hold that it's important to have a national framework so that companies, as well as people with disabilities, aren't facing different landscapes and different rules and regulations in a state-by-state -state environment. If we have a national framework, and it's, uh, I think if we have a national framework, then we have greater certainty on what we can expect in terms of accessibility and inclusion. Now, there, there's a, another argument to have there, whether a national framework or federal rules should be the, the ceiling of what is allowed or should be the minimum, the floor, and states are able to do more. Uh, certainly, I, I have my personal opinions, as I'm sure many folks do, and I'm sure that ACB would formulate an opinion um, based off of other advocacy work that we've done in the election space, the uh, accessibility, website accessibility space. Uh, most likely it would be that federal rules should be the floor, but states should be able to do more. Uh, but that's a conversation for another time. Um, so that's that's ACB's position. We've, we've certainly weighed in in the, the California Public Utility Commission over the years as well. Um, and we've certainly flagged and worked collaboratively with the California Council when these opportunities have come up, just to make sure that everyone knows what the other one is doing. Um, and to Jeff's point, it's like, Yes, the allowing the testing of autonomous vehicles, allowing this technology to progress is important um, and will lead to you know, advances in the technology and broader deployments. Um, but people with disabilities, you know, we don't want to be going to an ice cream shop and only being able to lick the ice cream through the glass window, right? We don't want that barrier in place that in this case, an accessibility barrier that prevents us using this technology once it's available and once it's out on the road. So we are supportive of this technology, uh, but we are also insistent that this technology be accessible and take the needs of people with disabilities into account. Great. So let me just turn to Claire and kind of broaden the discussion for, for just a couple of minutes. Claire. Um, Working with NDRN, you talked earlier, the, your perspective is a little broader. It's cross-disability. Um, maybe just share how ACB's position aligns um, with the broader disability community, and maybe what are some of the other concerns that maybe the broader community has that we're going to need to think through as we think about our own advocacy perspective on these issues? Yeah, thanks, John. Um, I just want to echo everything that Clark just ended with. And I think that's definitely what the greater disability community is thinking. Um, and we have the same priority as far as making sure that when these are designed um, by the companies and um, governed by the federal regulations, that they are made accessible from the get-go. Um, that we don't have to go back, you know, retroactively and say, okay, great, you've de you've um, designed these wonderful vehicles. Now let's make them accessible. Um, I was really struck by Lucas's comment not too long ago about how 
um, he's seen that um, back when computers were designed, accessibility was more of an afterthought, but that he's seeing the opposite. Um, and I love his optimism and I hope that is so true. I think I'm a little bit of a skeptic. And so um, I just really want to hold, you know, Congress and the the company's feet to the fire, so to speak, to make sure that that does indeed happen. Um, so yes, I think uh, the greater disability community is definitely aligned with ACB. Um, as far as access goes, there are so many things to think about. And I think that's the cross-disability community's fear, right, is that we can say, okay, maybe we put a ramp and we put uh, text-to-speech, so done. We've accommodated the whole disability community. That is not the case. Disabilities are wide-reaching and they look very different. Um, and so we often use the term multimodal. We want to be accessible in many different ways and shapes and sizes so that we make sure we cover all people. Um, one example I'll give you, for instance, um, one of the, the speakers earlier was talking about electric vehicles. It's pretty much assumed that a lot of these vehicles will be EV, AV at the same time. And uh, pardon my ignorance for a second, I'm not a car manufacturer, but from what I've understood and I've been told, the way that the batteries are installed in electric vehicles, they kind of are under the, the vehicle and they don't work well with ramps because where a ramp would be installed is where the battery in an electric vehicle is placed. Again, forgive my ignorance on the exact structure, but all that to say, I've, I've heard that it's going to be really hard to have ramps for persons who use wheelchairs when we have these electric vehicles for AVs. So that's just a design unto itself. We want to make sure that when you're interacting with the app, it's accessible for people with intellectual disabilities, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of accommodations to think about. No, I appreciate that. And, you know, short of diving into a, a really nerdy discussion of vehicle design, I think your point is, is the bigger point is important. And that is that there are competing priorities and they have to be, you know, they have to be addressed. And, you know, exactly. whether or not we have the solution now, I mean, one of the reasons right now that uh, a lot of the vehicles are constructed the way they are is because we're in current, uh, yeah, uh, uh, we have current regulations that require, for example, a, a driver's seat, a, seat, a steering wheel and foot pedals. And as long as those regulations are in place, it's hard to, they, you know, that takes away some of the ability to innovate space. And so I think the bigger argument is we've got to stay in touch with the industry because we need to make sure these priorities don't get lost as we're designing the tech. And I think that's a good, a good conversation. And since you mentioned him by name, I want to bring Lucas in, but we're not going to talk. Lucas, this isn't philosophy now. This is guide dogs. So a lot of us use guide dogs. Um, and um, I will tell you, as a person who uses a guide dog who has ridden in many autonomous vehicles, it is a different experience to work a guide dog to a vehicle that could be parked anywhere uh, in, in a parking lot or on the side of the road. Uh, what what from your perspective and by the way my dog now is starting to recognize the waymo vehicles which is actually very helpful but from your perspective what kind of training issues um, might be created uh, either for the student working with a guide dog or for the dog itself um, and what is the industry doing the guide dog training in industry doing uh, to kind of prepare for this transition to vehicles that are mostly electric um, that are pretty quiet and they that are autonomous Thanks, Ron. Um, well, you, you stole my thunder there a little bit because uh, from what I've, I've I've never worked a dog onto an autonomous vehicle. I've never ridden in, in an autonomous vehicle, but uh, from what I've seen in photographs of them, they have a distinctive look because they're so heavily uh, laden with sensors. 
And so the reason that your dog is being able to pick up uh, the autonomous vehicles is because they look different and you've done them enough that he's had the experience of saying that's got weird things on its top. It's either a police car that's after him or it's a, it's <laughs> a Waymo vehicle. Um, and, and, and so they'll come to it. The, the issue of what to do when you get out of the vehicle is a little bit more difficult because uh, from what I've understood, partly from this conversation and others, is they don't stop consistently in the same place. They don't take uh, particularly accessibility into, into consideration where they stop. So there, as, as Lisa pointed out, there were bushes between you and the destination. But that's just kind of average guide dog work in a way. You know, you would you might transition into a GPS to find out you're two two doors down from where you need to be. Um, frankly, I, I don't think they're going, you may have thought more, I'm sure you have thought more deeply about this than I have, but getting into a vehicle and riding in a vehicle is such a common experience for guide dogs that, that I think that will go fairly smoothly. Uh, I, I wouldn't anticipate a great deal of difficulty there. The bigger issue for us is the, is the very quiet vehicles uh and you know the electrics and we're still we're still as an industry i think coping uh with that transition um and uh certainly it's a room for advocacy for accessible pedestrian signals and also potentially apps like okayo and, and so on so uh that's that's really more our our focus i think is dealing with that change in infrastructure as opposed to the uh, uh autonomous vehicle end awesome so, and then Shane, I'll just drop this and then we can dive more into this later. But, you know, one of the things that connected autonomous vehicle technology brings to the table is the ability for vehicles to interact with their environment with each other and with other kinds of pedestrian infrastructure, such as traffic signals. Um, these vehicles all have LIDAR and, and different kinds of camera technology. And, you know, I'm wondering if, if, um, if the vehicles are being trained and I don't, I don't, I assume the answer is is yes, sort of. Um, but being trained to avoid obstacles and to recognize obstacles like people traveling with white canes, people traveling with guide dogs, um, things like that. So, I mean, I, I, I'm sure they're I'm sure they're being trained to detect obstacles. One of the questions is, are they being specifically trained to learn what what a guide dog, what a person working with a guide dog kind of looks like, so that the car starts to recognize, oh. That's a person with a service animal. They're, they may behave differently than other pedestrians. Um, so just something to ponder. And if you want to comment on that, you can. And if not, we'll just move on. Um, but just struck me when you were talking. Yeah, it's something that, that I've, I've wondered about. And, you know, the, the people in general have trouble recognizing guide dogs because they're so used to seeing people working on the street, unless you built some kind of transponder into the harness or something like that, mm. that they'd be able to pick up uh, or some some other type of technology that would allow vehicles to recognize a guide dog or a white cane. It's not inconceivable to me that you could end up with some very miniaturized transponder that might be of use, but there would also be privacy concerns. They're all over the place. It gets really complicated really quick. Yeah, interesting. Well, we just have a couple of minutes before I wanna open this up for, for audience questions and comments. So I'm going to go really, really fast, and I'll start with Jeff. If you could just take one minute or uh, or less, just share any last thoughts you have on, you know, do you think that the outlook overall is positive, neutral, or negative in terms of the question, you know, around autonomous vehicles? Are you excited about this transition? Um, are you neutral? Are you a little bit skeptical? 
uh, and maybe just a one sentence answer about why your answer. And Jeff, I'll start with you. I am generally very excited, but I always want to maintain a degree of skepticism because we just have to understand that our interests and the interests of other communities, in this case, it's the AV industry, are not always going to coincide. Mm-hmm. Got it. Lisa? I think my my biggest concerns um, as far as trip um, quality or experience quality is is the not getting not being in the car necessarily because I'm okay with with all that part but that getting to the car and then getting from the car to wherever I'm trying to get to and if if those last little bumps can get worked out um to a better degree I am so into this thing um it 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 really is just fun and fantastic yeah, it doesn't take too many rides in an Uber or a taxi or with your relative that you're not too sure about before this starts to look pretty good. So, oh, and uh, and if if I may, real quick, um, mm-hmm. Robin had mentioned about cleanliness of cars. I mean, I can only speak speak to our experiences in the Waymos. Um, so far, we've we haven't experienced uh, they're they're Jaguar cars, so they look really nice on the outside, and so far on the inside, um, we haven't found anything to be. Uh, smelly or um, you know anything that we've noticed I did notice that there are um, hand wipes and sanitizer um, things in the seat compartment and I noticed that in like two different cars that I was in so um, that was kind of interesting awesome thank you for that Uh, Lucas positive neutral negative well I'm overwhelmingly positive about this (laughs) um couple of things one is i didn't know they're jaguars and i wondered how the dogs would feel about knowing they ridden they'd been riding inside of a cat but anyway the the, <laughs> the, the another thing that I, I would be concerned about and i didn't mention it earlier but i have large concerns uh, that not related to this but about micro mobility scooters electric high high speed electric scooters and and bicycles as a great threat to independent mobility and the third thing I'd like to em- emphasize is interface, universality of interface, <clears throat> that, you know, it, as as uh, these dev- devices and vehicles become available on the market, uh, both in, in ride, ride share and other types of uh, uh, technologies, the, the universality of the, of the interface becomes increasingly key. So in terms of creating a national network and framework, and I'm sure this is part of what's going on, uh, within advocacy efforts, that 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 universality become uh, a key factor. Very good, uh, Claire. Yeah. Um, overall, I'm very optimistic. I think there's a lot of potential, and so I'm really excited to see it. But putting my policy hat on, I'm just always nervous when you're dealing with Congress. Um, I went to that. Um, energy and commerce hearing that Clark talked about. And I was very excited that both Republicans and Democrats alike talked very excitedly about making these accessible for people with disabilities. But at the end of the day, it is Congress. So you never know what's going to happen. True, true point. Clark, we'll finish with you. Yeah, thanks, Ron. I am, I am very optimistic. And part of that is because I know the current state 
of transportation equity and transportation safety for our members and people with disabilities. Uh, I believe in, in 2022, there were over 40,000 road fatalities in the United States. And that's human drivers, folks. Uh, just this year in Virginia, which the ACB head, national office is headquartered in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, we just passed a law that cars need to stop when pedestrians are in the crosswalk before they just had to yield. Um, autonomous vehicles can be programmed to stop at a, at a crosswalk. They can be programmed to stop for pedestrians. And due to the technology that's being used, um, you know, I think it's, I think there's more nuance to the conversation about uh, whether a car recognizes somebody with a cane, somebody with a guide dog, somebody uh, using a wheelchair, or, uh, you know, if it's being programmed with large learning models that takes, a, um, you know, skin color and equity into account. But at the end of the day, they're using technology that identifies an obstacle, and they can be programmed to not hit that obstacle. Meanwhile, we're playing Russian roulette with human drivers that know the rules and can choose to disobey them anyway. And that's how you get uh, over 40,000 road fatalities a year, a number that has only increased since the years of the COVID-19 pandemic, and fewer people are taking public transportation. So. Uh, for those reasons, uh, geez, and I haven't even touched on uh, ride denials based off the presence of a service animal. A yep, car without yep. a driver can't deny you a ride, folks. Um, it, when we talk about being able to identify the vehicle, uh, that still exists today. That exists today's with taxis. That exists today's today with ride shares. Um, so. I, I will get off my soapbox now, but for all of these reasons, I'm very optimistic. I know we still have a lot of work to do to ensure accessibility from the outset and ensure that accessibility, uh, even if it's an iterative process, can be included with a baseline that is improved mm -hmm. over time. You know, you bring up a great point and we're going to open this up. Um, I've taken a couple of dozen uh, trips in autonomous vehicles and so far I've yet to be denied by the driver because there wasn't one so it's a good point uh, well, yeah the the biggest yeah. reason we're going to have these things is 38 percent yeah. of accidents are from distracted drivers right so we're going to open this up and what i'd like to do we have very um a precious little time unfortunately i wish we could go an extra hour but um we can't so what i want to do is is first off if if you have a question raise your hand um i'm going to ask for no repeats if you ask a question earlier i'd like to leave it open for other people first um Let's go as fast as we can, both with the questions and the responses, and let's go. We'll go till 5.55 after. All right, you've got like three minutes. Margie. Uh -oh. Hi, good morning, everyone. I just, um, Clark said most of what I was gonna say, but I'm impressed that industry is still here on the Zoom conference. I think that speaks a lot. And I think one of our biggest fears in our community and in the in the universe is the accidents with driverless cars. But folks, I wake up every morning and I hear at least two DUI fatalities. I'll say one last thing. Yesterday, I had to deny a ride share. I got in the vehicle. The driver smelled so badly. I honestly got nauseous. That will never happen in the Waymo. And no, I haven't 
ridden in the Waymo, but when the weather gets cooler, Ron and Lisa, I'm coming to visit. Thank you. Thanks for the warning. I mean, thanks for letting us know. Next, uh, next. Uh, Nona. Yeah. Um, yes. Good afternoon. Thank you. This has been really interesting. Um, I, I guess in terms of advocacy, what can we do today to start preparing our states, uh, whether it's talking with our legislators to kind of get this conversation started for the future when this is available um, on a more wide scale basis? Thank I'll you. Throw that to Clark. Sure. And I'll, I'll bring Claire into the conversation at, for the, the national level. But the hearing that, that Claire and I referenced that took place last week, that was a legislative hearing. So there was a Republican piece of draft legislation, and there was a Democratic piece of draft legislation. The next step is for a legislative markup, which means that the, the Innovation Data and Consumer Subcommittee of the House Energy and Commerce Committee will be voting on uh, whether or not to advance legislation to the full committee. Um, so if that markup gets scheduled, I would say expect a, an action alert to contact your members of Congress uh, with a, a recommendation based off of what's ultimately included in the legislation to uh, encourage them to vote for the legislation to increase access or to vote against the legislation because it excludes people with disabilities. Um, at the national level, Claire, anything you'd like to add? This is Claire. No, I echo everything Clark just said. Um, reach out to your Congress members because it is so prominent right now. Um, reach out to Swatha and Clark um, to find out who's on that subcommittee. If you are from Florida, South Carolina, um, other states, those are the, the states that are on the subcommittee, reach out to them make some noise. But yeah, um, I, I love that your question was at the state level, but you can even be involved now at the national level. And then at the state level, thanks, Claire, at the state level, really work with your state affiliate um, to bring attention to this issue at the state level. Let them know um, where, what your priorities are, if there are concerns, and have the conversation about how accessible autonomous vehicles can be moved forward at the state level. Let's take one final last quick question. All right, Linda. Yes, um, am I unmuted? Yes, ma'am. Yes, you are. Okay, well, I don't know how quick, but um, what about people in our ACB community, for instance, that have issues with hearing, whether they be uh, hearing impaired, uh, like myself, or totally deaf or whatever, uh, as far as accommodations go? accessibility. So, I mean, it's, it's a good question. Um, I don't know, Jeff, Ron, do you want to, Ron, yeah. you know, Mike Malting uh, has his hand raised. And, and he would be great if he's still here. Mike, if you want to take just a quick minute, that would be great. Well, I actually wanted to uh, just get feedback on the prior question, not on the last one. So I just wanted to wait until the end to talk about what can we do to make sure accessibility is going to be included going forward. Okay, we have like one minute. So go. That's fine. All right. No, I just wanted to, uh, I, you know, just thank you again for keeping, you know, giving me the opportunity and all of us from the industry here to participate. It's been a great discussion. Again, I mean, you know, I retired from Mercedes-Benz a couple of months ago, so I'm here as an independent automotive, uh, you know, consultant, so I can speak more freely. I just want to, you know, encourage you guys and, you know, you, you hit the points on the spot. You know, we got to make sure 
like like Lucas said, you know, when they came up with the computers that, you know, all the requirements we have for accessibility are being now being, you know, reflected, implemented with the development of autonomous vehicles. And one great, you know, initiative would be that whatever leverage you have with the federal government, with the Department of Transportation, I mean, you, you know, Clark mentioned the meeting that you had, which was great just a couple weeks ago. And I know there was a meeting with, with the vice president and Piotrnik. Um, we, you know, the, the Department of Transportation, NHTSA, they have these industry roundtables for autonomous vehicles. I mean, they get, they want feedback from the industry right now, but like I said, you gotta be on the table. The disability accessibility community gotta be on the table on these roundtables. So you need to go to the Department of Transportation and say, listen, if you're serious about this, you know, we need to be on the table. We need to have representation on these roundtables, not just the industry, but also people from the disability community need to be on these tables when you talk about testing requirements or standards that need to be implemented. And if the Department of Transportation invites people from the disability community on these industry roundtables, the signal that would send to the manufacturers would be huge because it would really underline the importance that the Department of Transportation and the government takes on accessibility when it comes to the development of autonomous vehicles, not just like for the public transportation sector, but more importantly now for the commercial sector, you know, the manufacturers beyond Cruise and Waymo, we just need to get all the other manufacturers on board that they need to include accessibility. And again, Department of Transportation could play a huge role inviting people from disability to the industry roundtables. And of course, what uh, Jeff said earlier, standards, we need to have minimum standards already now. You know, we can't wait until the car's gonna hit the road in the next five to 10 years. Thank you. And, and Ron, Ron, this is Ron, Clark. you have to, three minutes. Yeah, to, Clark, go ahead jump, and then we'll wrap it up. Sure, to jump in and, and answer the, or at least provide an answer to the, the last uh, individual's mm -hmm. question. So it, um, that's exactly the points that, that ACB is bringing forward. So Claire mentioned, you know, multimodal access and ACB recognizes that although our, our mission is specific to people who are blind and low vision, many of our members are, older Americans, folks with phys physical mobility, dexterity impairments, uh, folks with dual sensory loss. So when we are advocating for access, it's taking all of our members into account. It's ensuring that not only is there audible output, but accessible uh, text uh, representation, whether that's uh, captioning on the in-screen displays or within the smartphone app that is accessible to people you know, with dual century loss as well. So that's that's certainly an area of focus that we will keep advocating for, not only within government, but ACB is a part of both the Waymo and Cruise accessibility networks um, as well. So we will continue to provide this sort of feedback shared by all of you directly to the manufacturers as well. Right. Well, I want to wrap up and I wish we had more time to, to spend on this, but this was a good discussion. There will be many, many more to come. I want to thank Anthony again for allowing us this space uh, to talk about this issue. I want to thank Sheila for hosting uh, and Belinda Collins for her work streaming and managing in Clubhouse. And I realize we didn't get to spend much time talking to Clubhouse. Um, and I apologize for that oversight on my side. Um, but I, I also just want to say thank you to you for joining, for your questions. I want to thank our panelists for being here. This show uh, could not have been possible without you and your expertise. And I want to acknowledge something that uh, Margie said. We had industry stay till the end, and I really appreciate the respect uh, that that shows. Um, and I know our members do as well. This is going to be in a podcast, uh, so watch for that. 
And um, if you need anything with regard to Sunday edition, you can send an email to acsundayedition at gmail.com. Um, and uh, I believe that is it. Thank you, everybody. You've been listening to Sunday Edition on ACB Media. Stream one. That's American Council of the Blind Media or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Episodes drop every week at 1 p.m. on Sundays. And you can email us at Sunday Edition AC, all one word, Sunday Edition with the letters AC at gmail.com. Let's brunch again together next Sunday.